And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Dennis's Docklands Delight. Saturday Spectacular drowns out soaking Sunday. Calls for consistency after confusing FIA calls and Envision NZ Stenders episode drama with team's title. Hello and welcome to the Race Formula E podcast where we'll be looking back at the dramatic season finale from XL. I'm your host Andrew Vanderberg and as ever I'm joined by the race's intrepid Formula E correspondent Sam Smith but also by a very special guest and that is new Formula E world champion Jake Dennis. So champ how does it feel? Oh it feels good. Uh, yeah it feels uh, yeah like it's slowly starting to sink in. Um, you know the emotions I felt when I first crossed the line were obviously up there as, as one of my best memories in life. But I think even now, like just doing basic tasks, like you, you keep remembering uh, the feelings you had with the team and everything like that. So, yeah, still emotional about it, still like sinking in slowly. And I think it will over the next week or so. How's the uh, celebrations been? Have you been able to properly let your hair down yet? I mean, we all celebrated Sunday night with the team, which was great. That was one of the perks about winning the championship is it allowed the whole team to come to the gala uh, after party, which was which was really nice. Um, you know, it's, it's it's something which they deserve so much and, and to be able to share the celebrations with them uh, was important. Uh, and then, yeah, it was just recovering Monday and then I was uh, back on a flight to Germany Tuesday. So it was pretty short-lived. Um, busy week this week coming up. And then afterwards, I can I can go on holiday with all my friends and, and get away from this horrid UK weather right now. Yeah, that's the great thing about uh, Formula E. You've got quite a long off-season before you're really required to get back to work again. Yeah, that's really one of the best things. Um, I think that's why the drivers love it so much. Um, you know, obviously, October's not too far away with the Valencia test. Normally, it's in like November or December. So it comes around a little bit quicker this year. But um, yeah, once that's sort of week of of you know media and testing is done then you actually get like another couple of months off so uh it's it's a really nice schedule um i'll be i'll be kept pretty occupied with other commitments from bmw through the winter but nevertheless um yeah my next big race won't be until until january which is nice so while everything's all nice and chilled and relaxing now, it seemed far from the case midway through that first race where you seemed to have someone on your case just about every corner and it, it, it was quite fraught for a while, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty uh, an intense race. Uh, I didn't expect it to be that... I didn't expect it to go that way, to be honest. Um, I knew exactly how it would pan out at the start with the way Nick and, and Seb would work together and... And the way they used attack modes, I mean, they executed that perfectly up until obviously their incident. But uh, yeah, just after that, I thought, you know, once Nick was out of the race, it would then be quite a, a simple and straightforward race. But 
it wasn't to be, you know, there were safety cars, red flags. Um, it was one of those um, races which were backing up a lot in certain corners. So it was very easy to break your front wing. So the concentration levels were extremely high just throughout the whole whole race. And I just felt like I was getting dive bombed uh, or getting hit so many times throughout that race by, yeah, and it felt unnecessary. Um, so yeah, the the level of tension was 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 high for sure. I know you guys say you treat every race just like the other, but knowing exactly what was at stake, did, were you feeling different behind the wheel? Oh, definitely. You know, we're only human, and I went into that race uh, with a plan of just like you know, bring it home and, and try and try and score a decent amount of points. I knew Nick was probably going to get the win if if it, if it went his way. Uh, but I think Boemi was such a, an important part of that race of how helping Nick that it made it almost impossible to, to, to fight him. Uh, and then obviously they decided to take a quite a high risk chance of, of bringing Nick back into my sort of path. Uh, and at that point then I, I knew if I wanted to, to stop him winning that race, I had to get in front of him and, I did quite a high risk overtake for something, someone in my position with the championship. And I felt like that was probably the championship winning overtake because, you know, I, I allowed Rast to take uh, a free attack. I allowed some, you know, other drivers to get involved. Um, and then, yeah, I just sort of brought him back into my race, which at that point was probably around about a P3 or P4 due to the circumstances. And obviously him finishing third or fourth was a lot better than him winning the race. Because, uh, yeah, I think by that point, it was probably going to be Mitch's or Rast's race to win if obviously Rast didn't have that incident. But, um, and yeah, I don't think Nick would have won it in the end. So it was super and crucial part of the race. I'm glad I did it. Uh, and I think it probably got him a little bit flustered. And that's ultimately what broke, broke his front wing with Seb in the end. How much of this were you sort of working out on the hoof behind the wheel and how much was uh, communication back with the pit wall? Um... To be honest, it was just all instinct. Uh, there was obviously communication going back to and from the pit wall, but it was nothing uh, which was helping me in that certain situation against the Envisions. Um, you know, that was just purely just me versus them. Um, there's not too much the team can do at that point. You know, they just leave you to it and and allow you to do your thing. Um, but I think when Nick was out of the race, there was a lot more communication of what needed to happen. Uh you know, where I needed to finish uh, and stuff like this. So, yeah, that middle part of the race was very much just, yeah, try, try and bring Nick down with me more than anything. Yeah, going on to that, how, how did the, the, you find out that, that Nick was out and did the, things instantly change for you when you got that message? Yeah, um, you know, I saw him obviously hit the, hit the back of his teammate and I, and I heard the crunch and I was like, that sounded bad. Uh, and then... I saw his front wing started to drag on the floor uh, on entry to turn nine. And then obviously, yeah, he couldn't turn. So I knew Nick was basically out of the race. Um, I knew he would have had to pit for a new front wing, which then meant Andre, who was obviously further back, would be able to probably keep Nick in check. Um, you know, just spend energy, keep him behind, not allow him to come through. I believe Andre would have would have been able to do that. So I was pretty confident that Nick wouldn't score points. Um, and then it was... I actually thought that was enough. Like just, you know, me picking up six points would have, would have done it. But then they were like, you need to finish third uh, because of Mitch. I, I was just, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I've, I've got to go again. Like I now need to, I was at fifth at that stage of the race. I still had to take both attacks. 
Uh, and yeah, I was just, I didn't even think about Mitch at that stage. So um, yeah, I sort of had to like still reset, um, gather my sort of emotions in, in, in sort of, yeah, fight my way back through the field. Sam, watching it was one of those classic uh, tense title deciders. I know it wasn't the final race of the season, but were you there with your bit of paper trying to work out the points as well as, as what was going on? Yeah, it was like a sort of long lost episode of Countdown or something. And uh, I was I was gen- generally failing. So I feel for the engineers and for, for Jake in their position. I was listening to Jake's radio, actually. And yeah, there was there was a lot of jeopardy around. And, and to, to do it in that manner, that dramatic manner, two red flags, and, you know, you can argue whether the, the last one should have been started or not and then how many laps there were to go because there was a great deal of confusion with, with that part of the race too. But they they got it done. And, you know, the fact that Antonio Felix da Costa got disqualified at the end didn't really mean too much. I mean, it would have been horrendous if that would have been the, the crux of whether Jake was champion or not, but it didn't matter either way. You know, he, he had enough points in the bag but um yeah i mean the the interesting thing for me and and one of the the sort of narratives through it and i wrote about this the day before was all this kind of this hodgepodge of choreography or how that you know they could help the teams and the customers could help the manufacturers and vice versa but at the end of the day you know you just got to get the job done and it's interesting how not ruthless but just how focused jake was and then you you compare that to Cassidy and Buemi and at one stage early on it looked like Cassidy had it made didn't it and it just that they just over elaborated everything um with that race and Nick said he was too kind in trying to do you know repay a favor to to his teammate well you know that's not what the drivers championships about the drivers championships about you so forget the teams um I know it's not easy but if you can do both great but let's get the drivers done first and it was um they just tripped over themselves obviously but but actually Jake when you know we saw we saw that sort of contention with the 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 Porsche guys I mean plainly let's put it plainly one was trying to help you and the other didn't seem to be that interested was that how it felt from the cockpit during the race um yeah i i would say so you know i think it was a it was a difficult situation for for all four all three cars you know pascal myself and and antonio um you know we, we had a chat friday which was uh you know to try and help me win the championship on um on friday and then sorry on saturday and then i would obviously try and return the favor for them on on sunday and um, I don't think that quite went to plan. Um, I think when they thought Cassidy was out of the race that I was then just automatically champion, uh, which obviously wasn't the case. Uh, so I think there was some confusion from that side, uh, which didn't really get reported uh, back to the drivers maybe. Um, I'm, not, I'm not too sure. But yeah, there was obviously some high-risk overtakes going on between me and Pascal, which I felt were quite unnecessary. But uh, in the heat of the moment, you know, it was... Uh, it was difficult to control. I, um, you know, obviously he had nothing to lose and I had everything to lose. So I just had to be sensible around him. Uh, that's why I took attack uh, when he was being quite aggressive just to get away from him. And, you know, I felt a bit more comfortable being around Antonio instead and, and NATO um, because I knew NATO was uh, thinking about the championship with, with McLaren, uh, with what Fraser told me, my manager. So, um, I felt in a much safer position in, in, in that aspect than I did uh, when I was fighting uh, Boemi and, and, and Pascal. 
Have you had a? Did you catch up with them after the race with Pascal and and Antonio? Did you talk it over? I mean, I caught up with Antonio and uh, I listened back to his radio comms, and, and and it was clear that Antonio had intentions to help me, which was good. Um, so, yeah, it was nice that obviously Antonio arrived on the scene, obviously from having a really impressive race to be fair from P17 up up to I think it was like P5 at that point, and you know he he made the call. He was like, "What's going on? Like, what what?" why are we all battling uh and then yeah uh was, was there to help me if needed um in the end obviously when we were third and fourth he didn't know that I needed that third place to, to win the championship that's why I felt like he was defending from me uh, when I tried to pass him but he said he never got told uh that I needed that third place to become champion otherwise I felt like yeah he would have he would have allowed me to to take that podium uh and obviously become champion I've I believe him when he says that. Um, ultimately, you never know. We are quite selfish drivers, uh, some more than others, but I think Antonio was was respectful that day. Verline's radio might be interesting from that race, just uh, putting that out there. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard it. I think that says it all. <laughs> um, of course, you've been in contact. Have you had a, a congratulations note from them? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, Porsche, especially the, the, the board members, you know, they 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 want me to to beat a Jaguar. Like, there's no toys about that. So, they were extremely happy that they could, you know, supply a, a championship winning powertrain. Uh, especially when it seems more and more difficult as the season went on. You know, I, there's no denying that Jaguar definitely had the advantage over us on the last sort of three or four rounds. Uh, especially the last two, just the way their powertrain is designed, it suits Rome and London like perfectly. And um, yeah, I mean we really turned the, the pace which we bought to, to London over the other Porsches is, is seriously impressive. Like we were six to seven temps quicker than Pascal, Antonio and, uh, and Andre, which is just like mind blowingly impressive. Uh, so I have to thank the team for, for nailing the setup. And obviously I did a couple of good laps in qualifying to, to allow us because yeah, there's not a chance I would have, I would be champion if I was qualifying, you know, 10th, 17th and 18th, like like those guys were. So, yeah, full credit to, to my boys for that. Pre-race, we'd uh, maybe given you the commentator's curse by saying your record at XL sort of meant that, you know, it was it was yours to lose in many ways. Um, but with these new cars, how, how much different was it? Could you rely on that sort of muscle memory from how well you'd gone there before? Um, I mean, it was completely different. Um, just the way you drive the car, the way you hit the brakes, the way you're, you're, you know, turning the wheel it, it is significantly different to Gen 2. So I don't feel like it helped me all that much in terms of, you know, I was good there in Gen 2. I'm, I'm, I have to be good there in Gen 3. I don't think that transferred over. But ultimately, we were good um, and we were a step ahead of the other Porsches. But I think that's just because we, we've been working at such a high level. Rome was the same. We were... You know, the only the only car I'd be able to take it to the Jaguars, and uh, yeah, and then it was the same same in L- London as well. But um, I don't think it had anything to do with my previous results in Gen Two at London. It was just we're working at such a high level, and and my boys are, were giving me such an impressive and fast car to be able to fight them. And yeah, I felt like I was performing well. Both my laps in qualifying in in, in the groups and the duels were were good. Um, and yeah, I didn't really leave anything left on the table. 
So I haven't had all the elation of winning the championship on Saturday. It must have been quite hard for you going into Sunday, especially when there was such an enormous delay on the race. I imagine you just wanted to get out of the car and, and, and carry on with the celebrations, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, Sunday I was really looking forward to, obviously, the qualifying, which went amazingly. Uh, you know, it was nice and dry, simple. Uh, I just enjoyed every lap and, um, yeah, didn't really have anything to lose, especially on that final lap, you know, when we were, I think, down in, like, sixth or seventh in the group stage. Um, and then that final lap, I, I managed to pull it out of the bag in and get second in group, which I was surprised by how upbeat I was and how much I wanted that because you know I didn't need to do that I didn't I, I could have finished last in that group and and you know enjoyed my race from the back uh but yeah it still meant so much to me to be able to qualify at the front and and get a Porsche powertrain up there and, and and deliver a good result as well so champion world championship in the bag uh are you a lifer now is your career in uh, in Formula E or are there other things that you want to turn your hand to? Obviously, you've got your BMW commitments alongside that. Yeah, honestly, I see myself in Formula E for many of years. I, I'm i open to talking about IndyCar in terms of that. I don't really think it's, to, it's for me. Uh, you know, some drivers have expressed interest that they want to that they want to explore it. And honestly, right now for me, after doing the test in September last year, I have even less interested of going um and i've said that i think michael would give me the opportunity if i wanted to go uh, i think right now he's happy for me to stay in formula e and you know continue to to push the boundaries there and you know do a good job for andretti uh but i feel like if i really said to him like i want to i want to go to indycar he would give me a seat um but yeah i just you know the lifestyle's not really for me over there um i would obviously have to move there it's a big commitment and yeah, it's not so much like I don't care about the money. I, d- I don't care about any of that. It's just I want to enjoy my racing. And I feel like the Gen th- Gen 3 Evo uh, with a new sort of Hankook tyre and then the Gen 4 is going to be a really interesting project for, for all of us. And, you know, it's going to have more grip, so I'll enjoy it more. And, um, yeah, I just see myself happy in, in Formula E and, Obviously, I have my BMW commitments as well, and they have some really exciting projects which um, which do interest me. So, yeah, uh, I'm really happy with my racing at the moment of what BMW and Andretti allow me to, to do. Are you just holding out for Andretti getting an F1 entry then? Uh, I think even if they got it, I don't think I would. I don't think I would have the opportunity to go. Uh, I would imagine they'd obviously put an American in, and then. Uh, and then maybe an experienced guy because that makes complete sense to do. Uh, and 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 you know you, you see the likes of Nick. You know he he became champion in season eight, um, and then went to F one. It's obviously not quite worked out, and now he can't get a, a gig back in the Formula E, which is the second best thing you can do to F one. So it's a high risk like strategy. You know you either make it work or you don't, and uh, it would be something which wouldn't be an easy decision for me to make. Um, because, yeah, it would also be a difficult task for Andretti to supply a, a, a competitive car. And even if you do the best race of your life in a Formula 1 car in an Alpha Tower, no one sees it. Um, you know, you might finish 12th instead of 14th, and you could be a minute ahead of your teammate, but no one no one knows. It's all about, you know, McLarens, Ferraris, and, you know, you obviously got the Red Bull, which is a different level, but... Yeah, you only really see who's doing a good job when you're in that middle 
those those middle competitive cars. And you know, if Lando beats Oscar by a minute, everyone knows about it. If if Ricardo beat Sonoda by a minute, like I wouldn't have known from the weekend, and I don't think many people would have. So it's really difficult to prove yourself in F one unless you've got a car which is in the top top ten. Uh, absolutely right well that's all a speculation for the future the the immediate stuff is to go and uh, enjoy your richly rewarded uh, title there so we'll let you go um jake thank you so much for joining us and uh yeah really good luck for the the season ahead but uh, enjoy your time in between thank you so much guys appreciate it thanks for having me on so, Sam, brilliant to have uh, Jake on. What do you make of his, um, not just the drive over the weekend, but the entire season, a model of consistency? Absolutely. Yeah, he deserves all the adulation, all the credit. And and just the the story, actually, just the story of his season and actually his time in Formula E, three seasons. He's won the championship after three seasons, exactly what Nick uh, De Vries did as well. So a fine... A fine performance. I mean, when you look back at it in Mexico City, he was so far ahead that you thought, well, actually, he's he's the favourite from the early stage. There was then that dip after the second and third rounds and he, he didn't score big. But then the true test of a champion, isn't it, that he comes back fighting. He got that win in Rome. He bagged so many different podiums from, um, from Berlin onwards. Uh, made very few mistakes. I mean, the only one I can really remember, there was one team one in Cape Town when they got the tyre pressures. They got pinged for tyre pressures and he, he got a penalty. And then he made a mistake in Berlin when he swiped De Costa um, and, and lost a load of positions there. So that apart, you'd say that he absolutely deserved what he did but I think in the bigger context of of what Jake Dennis and, and Avalanche Andretti have achieved and I've written this this week is that people forget that team was essentially reborn only well two years ago when BMW made their pretty unfathomable decision to withdraw from Formula E they regrouped they reset they metamorphosed into this new entity this pure andretti entity which we'd had in the early days of formula e to, to varying successes well yeah so much less successful than this current version yeah yeah i mean it seems ages ago now it is in a sense but you know their second season was you know especially painful but the way that they regrouped and they restructured and they got back on track in season seven um sorry in season eight uh, and then last year they they had a, a similarly good start to this year and then a big trough until the end of the season the last two events of the season when when dennis fought back and and got a bunch of points i i think you know it was it was a similar kind of cadence to the season except except not as extreme and there was much more consistency and as we know consistency is the absolute key it's the key performance indicator for who's going to be a champion as we saw with van dorn last year so qualifying races um lack of mistakes all constitutes uh, a, a strong season and i don't think there was anyone in that paddock that begrudged jake dennis and andretti um, their celebrations come Sunday night. Well, let's get a little bit back into uh, the weekend, and especially that first decisive race. Um, I remember I, I sent you a WhatsApp when we saw Cassidy's wing wobbling, going, did Buemi cause that? And then we saw the replay. It's like, he did what What were Envision playing at? It just seems like a an unbelievable act of self-harm to you know end their chances in that way. It was barely believable. I mean, you know, I, I do double takes every race, but this one was especially 
you know, especially obvious just to question exactly what was going on there. I mean, up until that point, they were driving the perfect race. I mean, Buemi did exactly what a team player should do, was really brave um, at the start of the race, got Dennis, hang, hung him out to dry, um, allowed Cassidy to build a, a gap, took his two attack modes, was set for the race. And then as the cameras panned back to see some action further down the field with, with Dennis and Rast and others, um, Cassidy had, 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 had relinquished that lead and was was all of a sudden back in third place and then behind Dennis in fourth. I mean, it, it just didn't seem possible that at one stage he could be in that that sort of maelstrom of of action um you know there were elements in that race of of having to watch your energy but certainly nothing along the lines of previous races in the championship and speaking to nick afterwards his his viewpoint on it was that he was trying to get Boemi back into play to do the team game well i, I can understand that and you have to take him at face value and it's a it's an honorable and noble thing to do but this is a driver's championship you know he had it made and he then went back behind Boemi um, I, I, it's it's a difficult one because then you start to question well where is the strong team um, instructions here you know were they getting strong team instructions and I don't believe they were I think a lot was left to the drivers on this occasion and Buemi said he wasn't getting calls Cassidy said he was getting intermittent calls it just seemed a mess from the you know the puppet masters who were who were the eyes and ears out of the cockpit so I you know, as, as much as Envision have done a fantastic job this season and, and richly deserve their success with the team's title, which we'll come on to shortly, which is another sort of story, actually on Saturday it was it was a mess and it arguably cost Nick Cassidy the championship. The question then is, well, you know, who's to blame for that if you want to apportion blame? And ultimately you have to say it's the team. Um, I think, you know, Nick, you know, Nick could have been a bit more... A bit more aggressive, a bit more mercenary, if you like. Um, maybe that's not quite in his nature as much of a, as other drivers, and that's 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 laudable to some extent. But at the same time, when you want to actually go and get a drivers' championship for yourself, you you know, you, I don't think you can afford to, you know, think about other people. You've got to think about yourself. But it, they just got them tied themselves in a knot. Um, there was that contact, which look, you know, Buemi didn't mean to do that. Cassidy didn't mean to do it. Oh, no, it was just no, no. unfortunate timing but it was a legacy of trying to orchestrate this kind of team um choreography uh, whereas Cassidy should have been way ahead you know Buemi should have been backing everybody up and and then when it came to it Buemi should have let Cassidy go on the straight and reprise what he'd done earlier in the race easy to say now could you imagine Verstappen doing that <laughs> no, no but look I mean I, I'm not just saying this with hindsight. I was saying it at the time. I was turning to colleagues and going, what on earth are they doing? You know, they had the race made um, at that stage. But maybe maybe I'm missing something. But honestly, speaking to the team, speaking to Nick and Sebastian last weekend, um, that, that wasn't um, immediately obvious. And, and when I spoke to Nick after the race, this is what he told us about all those incidents we just talked about. Sometimes I just think I'm too kind, mate. I, I mean, I had two attacks done. I had the race one. I had the most energy of, I think, a lead bunch from yeah. what is being told. And um, I slowed up and went behind Seb to try half him out. Help Seb out? Yeah. Okay, so then you would be able to 
so he could do an attack or yeah. these things. Um, was that a pre-orchestrated part of the plan going into it? Not really, just, like I said, me being very kind, kind of saw what he did for me, wanted to help the team, thought I would still win the race, I had great pace all yeah. day, I had big energy. Um, yeah. That wasn't the only uh, bit of tension that was going on. We were cutting to inside the Andretti pits and saw Michael Andretti looking pretty uh, concerned. I don't know, there's a whole load of words that could be used to describe him. But there was some genuine tension going on between Andretti and the, and the Works Porsche team as well. I'd, I'd use the word nuclear rather than concerned. <laughs> it was fantastic, wasn't it? You know, Michael Andretti, who um, I spoke to somebody in the paddock who knows him well afterwards and uh, allegedly... I wonder who that might be. <laughs> allegedly doesn't swear too much, which I find extraordinary. But he, he certainly picked up some lip, uh, you know, did some lip reading on that one. He, he, yeah, he got fed up with Pascal Verlein's slightly aggressive manner, shall we say, in, in all that. Uh, that battling that was going on, um, s- took his headphones out, slammed them down on the desk and marched next door to the Porsche garage where my, my eyewitness accounts tell me that the first person he came across, rather unfortunately, was Michael Steiner, the most senior person at Porsche from the advisory board. Uh, <laughs> Michael sort of, I think, sort of blasted off at Michael and um, and then went looking for somebody else. It was fairly brief, um, but the good thing was that afterwards they they all got together and had a hug, and uh, you know it's it's right up Michael Street, that isn't it? Tension, title tension, bit of bit of all, you know, getting the elbows out and um, a lot of ranting going on. I mean, he was he was a hell of a passionate racer in his day, and um, I think he you know that got his that got his blood up, and I, I think he loves that. That's why he's there, isn't it? And um, it was all good stuff. I, no one held any grudges afterwards, and um, that relationship though has been very um, active uh, from the fraught side of things since. Jakarta, when there was that Verline and Dennis um, uh, sort of uh, contretemps, shall we say? Yeah, but look, I mean, given the history between those two, which Jake being a little bit naive to expect that Pascal will try and help him in any way whatsoever. Perhaps, yeah, I think he possibly was. I'm, you know, Pascal is a fairly um, aggressive individual in the car, complete opposite. To, to what he's like out of the car and uh you know that's why we love these guys that's that's why we we want to watch him um but actually in the context of of the title i can see why andretti were, were so upset and why and why michael was in particular but this you know their their relationship um let's call it stretches back to jake's very first race in Riyadh in 2021 where pascal swiped him into the wall um and it's not been fantastic ever since you know there's there's a lot of respect there for sure but that there is something sort of broiling around uh, those two when they get close on the track. And, and again, it happened at London. Um, they both got away with it, but, you know, listening to Jake's radio, he, he wasn't, was far from happy with, with uh, that performance. And uh, when Pascal got turfed into the barriers by an over-eager René Rast, the, the word karma was used several times <laughs> on the radio. But, um, you know, it, it all makes for, for great storylines. And, and, you know, we'll be talking about... I think that actually, from a dramatic point of view, that was right up there with Battersea in Season 1 and Season 2. And then some of the great title battles that we've seen 
in recent year that mad one in Berlin we had I mean it was it was a great finale wasn't it it could have it could have just petered away with Dennis at the front doing what he did in the last few seasons but it didn't he was right in the thick of it there were so many different plot lines so many different permutations going on so many uh, possibilities and when that second red flag came out uh, you know I thought well that's it it's done they're not going to restart a race for two laps yeah uh, yet they did or was it three Andrew I, I don't know um, <laughs> nobody seemed to know at the time because quite clearly at some stage um, the FIA uh, got it wrong uh, they then rectified it and it was all fine but I tell you what what no one's talking about is if that had been a full-on energy race like Portland oh. or um, what was the other one Berlin I'll tell you what, that would have been Valencia all over again. Well, no one, yeah, no one would have finished the race. That's I mean, I say, yeah. good lord! I mean, that that took some excavating from the paddock on Saturday night. I didn't leave the track till eleven o'clock or half eleven, um, trying to find out about this. But you know, the, the the complexity of that that red flag and the pass around, and then restarting the race and then adding the lap. Um, yeah, if, if if anyone wants to look carefully, they can see on the live coverage that the lap count went back one lap. Um, so, um, yeah, a, a possible catastrophe was averted by Scott Elkins and his and his guys. But uh, it was, you know, there's still question marks around that, but yeah, it'll need some forensic picking apart. But they, they ultimately did seem to get it correct. While all this was going on and almost sort of unnoticed, um, Mitch Evans won the race, probably the, the, the sort of least... Um, marked win of the season. It's, it's very easy to forget that he was he was out there, but it was a it was a really solid drive from him. Uh, ultimately, it was yeah another another sort of exemplary drive from Mitch Evans. His fourth win of the season. Um, he hasn't got the big prize yet, but we know it'll come. I think it's already looking like twenty twenty four could be his season with the continuity of the Jaguar. I type six. Um, he's obviously going to have a, a, a different uh, face when he looks over the, the other side of the garage with, with Nick Cassidy set to join the team, which will be interesting in itself. But I, you know, I think we've seen this year actually that the likes of uh, particularly Stoffel Van Dorn moving to a new team and, and Antonio Felix da Costa to an extent too, yeah. that irrespective of who you are, how talented you are, how experienced you are, that it does take time to bed into a new team. So I think... I think Nick Cassidy will be good next year. He will win races, of course he will with that car. You know whether or not he can be, you know he can right the wrong of of this year in terms of getting that championship. Which I think if Nick Cassidy would have won the championship instead of Jake Dennis this year, there would have been similar few people saying that he didn't deserve it because I think if Nick Cassidy would have pulled it off on on Saturday and Sunday in London he would have been a very deserving champion of course he would uh, I think any one of those top three would have been worthy champions I don't I don't think anyone could have complained about that yeah I mean the only you know thing you might say is Mitch Evans you know making that error in in Rome um yeah I mean if he'd have pulled it off in London it would have been extraordinary with the deficit that he had going in but he did what he he did the maximum didn't he he got he got those um he got those points he got pole position uh, sorry he didn't get pole position he got the win and and then the next day um you know he got he got a second place so there, there wasn't a massive amount more that that Mitch could do but of course those points that were lost in particularly Hyderabad uh, when he was taken out by his teammate and then uh, the mistake that he made in Rome really really counted against him when it was all totted up at the end of the season. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. So there's a couple of red flags we probably need to discuss. The first one for a big old accident for Sasha Fenestras. Um, but a, potentially a lucky boy there and the, the, the speed at which he went into the barrier there, that, was, that could have... Uh, could have been an ankle job. Yeah, it was a big shunt. Um, I mean, the, there was little deflection in the impact, wasn't there? It was like a, it was almost like a crash test, uh, one of the FIA crash test shunts. It was just straight in at, at 90 degrees, and um, those hurt. You know, the, the, thankfully, the Tech Pro was pretty deep there, and if you look at it, they actually pushed the wall and the fence back, uh, so it was a big, big, big impact, and he had to go and get checked out. The, the medical centre afterwards was completely fine. Uh, he celebrated his 24th birthday the night before actually and was in the same restaurant as us and um was um yeah was was celebrating his birthday with the obligatory racing driver orange juice and uh, and salad uh, but i mean he, yeah it was it, it was a big shunt but i, I think again with uh, the, the safety elements in place now that uh, yeah that the tech pro did its job the chassis did its job although he did have to change his survival cell for the next day but um i think the fact that the wall had been moved and, and needed realigning. It was obviously a right call for, for the race director to throw a red on that occasion. Yeah, the red which you alluded to left us with that two or three lap or however many it was. Shootout was a kind of bizarre incident between Nato and Buemi that obviously blocked the track and every other car got involved in one way or the other. Um, what was your take on that? It seemed completely unnecessary. Well, it, it had its roots in um, one man and one man only, in my my opinion, which was Sebastian Buemi. Not the actual accident itself. We'll come on to that. But the reason why Buemi was going so slow was that after the, you know, he hadn't taken his final attack mode, which was a big six minute chunk. So he took that at the green flag or the lap after the green flag, but then had to eke it out as much as he could to complete the six minutes before the end of the race. And there was only, I think, three laps left. So he was, if you look at his lap times, he was lapping seven to eight seconds slower. And 
Norman Natter will tell you that he was breaking on the straights, which, you know, is never a good thing to be doing. Or he was certainly obviously lifting off rather maybe than breaking, but lifting off extremely early before the corners and placing his car so nobody could get past. So he was literally a massive cork in the bottle there deliberately to try and hold on to his position. And then when Natto made a move into that, I think it was T18, the right-hander, um, Seb shut the door. Now, I mean, in the context of all that, I think that the, the blame is apportioned to Buemi. But in a racing, if you're just looking at it as a where you're placing your cars, it's probably a racing accident, um, ultimately. Whatever it was, it wasn't the penalty for Norman Natto, I don't believe. Um, uh, but he did get one. And Nissan were extremely displeased about this. But... I mean, it was a real mess. I expected the race to end there and then, but this is modern motorsport, isn't it? One must have a last lap blast, irrespective of what's going on. Um, and I thought that was a bit, maybe a bit unnecessary um, with everything that was going on. Yes, the fans want to see a completion of a race and they want to see a, a genuine checkered flag, but there is a limit. I mean, starting a race after a messy red flag with bits and pieces of cars missing off half the grid and you know who 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 was being told what to fix the cars and then go back to the back of the grid and who was going out there were four cars that went out of that pit lane with no nose assembly whatsoever or no front wing assembly whatsoever so there's big question marks i think about what constitutes a safe race car when you're going out i mean some of the cars had their crash structure exposed going out into the the front crash structure, going out into the race. I mean, I just, it, it just, firstly, it's not a good look. It looks dreadful. Secondly, yeah. it's, I think, quite dangerous. And actually going back to something I was pulled up about by a few people uh, in Mexico, if you remember, Jake Dennis completed his, I think his last two qualifying laps in the duels with a broken front wing. Now, we saw Nico Muller have one of the biggest shunts of the season when his wing went underneath his car. Um, now, letting cars out with bits and pieces hanging off their front of their car when they're doing 160 miles an hour down a couple of points of the circuit, I just don't see how that fits in with the overall safety of the championship. Um, and yes, you know, obviously teams don't want their drivers to go to the back of the grid but everybody says that safety is the number one priority in motorsport but actually in practice you've got to question that particularly with these things that went on on Saturday and I know having spoken to Ian James the chair of the Formula E Teams and Manufacturers Association that he's concerned about it and I think a lot of the team principals will be asking for clarity on what is fit proper and safe to uh, to head out into into a race when it's restarted um but yeah i mean the 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 the, I, the fia um penalty application last weekend was um erratic shall we yes. say erratic. well that was the thing i was going to get into next because um you you became a bit of a viral social media star didn't you and you uh shared the clip of um the van dorn mortar incident uh, questioning why it wasn't penalized which happened to coincide almost exactly with the Hamilton Perez thing in the in the F1 sprint what how, how many uh, views did you, did you get I've had my viral challenges at some races this season but this was another another episode altogether <laughs> yeah um I mean so you're gonna grow a tidy beard now and stop watching the races and yeah. just talk about you know what the say you're not really interested in the race yeah and and I, I can be an influencer and, and go yeah. on the black yeah. for races and then yeah. don't do anything in return that's what they're doing it 
Sorry, getting better about the modern world again. No, I mean the um, so the, the the main one. So there were several. We've talked about the NATO one. Um, there were several others, namely an incident that occurred quite early in the race. Race when Van Dorn went to make a move on Norman Nato, um, clearly outbraked himself, uh, grabbed the brake, lost control, hit Mortara, spun him round, lost Mortara several positions. I mean, if that wasn't a slam-dunk penalty, then I don't know what is. Yep. So when when I put this post out with a clip of the said incident, um, it got plenty of attention, let's say. Um, I, I can't see any justification for not taking action in that decision. And when you consider that I believe that the uh, Tachita branch of the paddock went up to the said hearing and obviously kept quiet and gave expressions of surprise um, privately afterwards that Van Dorn didn't get a penalty for that incident, um, I think it tells the whole story, doesn't it? I've not seen or met anyone who has not disagreed with that decision. There is only one person who sees that as a non-penalty um and well you know there are four probably the stewards there are three stewards and there is one driver's advisor who is paul belmondo who regularly acts in that role at formula e races and with all respect to paul belmondo because i'm a huge formula 3000 fan as you know and he was a he was occasionally a decent peddler in his day he hasn't driven anything for a dozen years and he's had no experience in a formula e car uh, yet he is one of the crucial stewards at half the races during a season um, which I think a lot of people are starting to question when these kinds of outcomes um, keep occurring um, and for a world championship it's, it's just not good enough There's, you know, that's, that's the be all and end all it's just not good enough for these decisions to take place at this level So if Van Dorn not getting a penalty for that was hard to fathom which to me as you say slam dunk even more difficult for somebody who wasn't at the track to understand was what uh, De Costa got penalised for. Yeah, basically it was for having a slow puncher, wasn't it? How yeah. how is that in any way a performance benefit? Well, if the Van Dol Mortara was was pretty simple in its um, yeah in its bafflement as to why that wasn't a penalty, this was a bit more complicated. De Costa ran over some debris believed to be Rene Rast's wing um, just before the first red flag. Um, the, the Rast wing was dislodged in that contact with Pascal Verlaine at Turn 1. So De Costa hit the debris. It damaged his tyre. There was a small well, it was a scrape and a cut in the tyre, but it was tiny. Um, presumably, um, this on inspection, this was known and monitored by Porsche. The Hankook live um, tyre pressure indicated that the tyre pressure had obviously gone down slightly with this damage, but on inspection at the uh, during the red flag in the part Ferme conditions, uh, Porsche were confident that it that they could race with it, and I think De Costa had done a couple of laps prior to that and felt comfortable. So the understanding is is that ultimately it is the team's decision to know if the car is um, is is safe and, and and compliant with the the, the regulations to go out there and and, and run. Um, what seems to have confused this is. The um, uh, an FIA technical uh, staffer apparently had a conversation, or according to Porsche, had a conversation with the Costa and an engineer, um, and said or insinuated that 
he was happy with it and that they could go out. Now, whatever happened there, it wasn't logged or detailed, and Acosta received a penalty because the FIA went, presumably went with the Hankook live tyre pressure, which, as you remember, as we mentioned before, in Cape Town, Jake Dennis had to have a drive-through for. So as the race went on, um, in the final stages, it was notified that Acosta, because he hadn't changed the wheel, um, which the Porsche dispute whether they were uh, told explicitly to t- change the tyre, that he was slapped with a three-minute penalty, which obviously completely screwed his race, yes. and it also screwed Porsche's possibility of fighting for the team's title. So this was high stakes for some yeah. for something that was not triggered or the fault of anyone's at Porsche's or De Costa's. But, I mean, surely the risk they're running is their guy retires i i i i don't well, find all of this absolutely well of, 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 of course of course we're not talking about common sense here are we common sense doesn't come into it but uh, <laughs> i mean i thought things are made to be complicated that just have no need to be complicated i oh, well, well when, but as you say it it sort of rounded off a, a pretty miserable final bit of the season for porsche i mean I, I can remember after the first couple of races really struggling to see how anyone was going to take the fight to them, Jaguar aside. And yet, really, there was a, a capitulation with the, with, in the end. Yeah, and there was a bit of um, there was a bit of copy and paste from last year when they just it just all fell away and they barely got any points in the final few races. Same same deal this year. I mean, it just didn't happen for them. Qualifying in the last two events in Rome and, and London was was pretty woeful. I mean, you know, De Costa started seventeenth. Verline was was midfield. Um when you when you look at the, the team's championship of which Porsche finished fourth at the end of the season, um in the last four races they scored eleven points between them. And when you consider that you know Envision and Jaguar were scoring well what, sort of ninety ninety to hundred points in that time, then it's it's a write off, isn't it? I mean they just were never in never gonna be in contention. So there's gonna be some tough questions being asked in, in Weissach and Stuttgart um in the coming weeks, that's for sure. Over the season they've been much better. I mean, let's not forget that. They've been much better. They've won they've won a whole load of races in, in combination with Andretti too. Um they have been in the championship hunt, but it's Porsche, isn't it? You expect that. You know, we expected this sooner in their Formula E tenure. You know, we thought they would be doing this in the second and third season. They they haven't. You know, this is their this is their fourth season at this at this level, and um, again, it's fallen away from them. And they ended up they ended up uh, sixty two points in arrears to Envision, and they actually ended up ten points off. Avalanche Andretti, and when you consider that Avalanche, who were Andretti, basically one car team, well, exactly, <laughs> exactly my point. So, um, yeah, un- unfortunate, but at the same time, the, yeah, I mean, the true misfortune was was things like the Costas penalty, but at the same time, that shouldn't mask the fact that, uh, from a competitive point of view, Porsche, Porsche, the works team weren't really in it in the last four races, and and that's often crucial in this championship. Why? Why were they so? Uh, unable to deliver in qualifying because genuinely the race pace for the cars as the cost had shown was absolutely fine but it was just getting into the duels seemed increasingly difficult for them 
Yeah, I mean, when when you look at it, the, the, clearly the top two powertrains, the top two manufacturers were Porsche and Jaguar. So that's eight cars, essentially. And, you know, Verline was qualifying 10th, 11th. So he's he's on the tail end of that, that eight. But, you know, others were getting in there. Nissans were getting in there. DS-powered cars were, were getting in there, too. You know, he shouldn't be out qualified by those cars really they they always struggled with a with a one lap pace anyway throughout the season if you you look at it that was the big question wasn't it even after they were conducting the whole symphony at, at diria and mexico city it was still a question about their one lap pace and they just never got on top of the qualifying aspect of it and with the hierarchical nature of the the duels um this season there was just no way that they were going to be able to fight back from that, even with the extreme energy sort of peloton races. It was always difficult for that. And and Verline's Verline's point scoring um, when he wasn't quite at the races, there was a huge discrepancy between not being able to win the race but collecting points compared to the likes of Cassidy, Dennis, and Evans, who were pretty much always on the podium or in fourth and fifth places. So when you look at Verlein's um, point scores, particularly in Berlin, he scored six, eight, six, one points between them, one point in Monaco. And then at Jakarta and Portland, he got eight points, four points, uh, two points and six points in Rome, which in any sort of normal championship, you'd think, well, that could contribute to a, a potential title campaign. But this season, just with the proliferation of, po- of podiums and, and wins that Dennis, Cassidy and Evans got, it was never going to be good enough. And and at the end of the day, um, Verline was, what was he? He was, um, he was 80 points off Dennis by the end of the season. 80. 80 points, where at one stage he was, what, 30 points in, in the lead of the championship. So... Yeah, it, it just tells its own story that it, it was a genuine season of two halves for Verline, but actually even within that, um, you know, when he was kind of in the in the mix, he, he just wasn't getting the number of points that, that, that that car and he were capable of. So you mentioned there that Envision had won the, the team's championship. You know, here's a, a, a genuine independent team. Uh, first year with that Jaguar powertrain, new car to get the head round as well. I mean, it's a phenomenally impressive achievement for them to come away with the, the team's championship, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it, it shouldn't be underestimated just how strong they've been this season from, a again, a consistency point of view. But actually, one which had its own little fight back that, that most people don't realise the just the just the momentous turnaround that they had as a team because in Valencia they looked uh, not the team itself but just their prospects looked a mess I mean Boemi's car was written off in his accident in Valencia testing Cassidy missed I think an entire day Boemi had missed most well he missed the day after the shunt but he'd also missed track that time before that they'd had little running in Jaguar private testing, they were learning off Jaguar. There were lots of problems. There were all the existential problems of the Gen 3 project to deal with as well. And when they came to Mexico, it was the same for the first free practice session, if I remember rightly. Then there was this big question mark whether Jaguar and Envision were going to race at all because they'd had these incidents with, you know, problems technical problems which were causing accidents because of the you know there was no way to stop the car um and it didn't look great for them uh they came away from mexico actually having 10 points 
um, between them, between Buemi and Cassidy, which was a result. You know, they were super happy with that in consideration to all the problems they, they had. And then it really started to come to life, I suppose, in, in Riyadh. And, you know, Buemi got a pole position. And then, you know, Cassidy got some points, but nothing spectacular. And then for him personally, it came alive in, in Hyderabad when he got that second position. Should have won the race, really. Just couldn't get past Jev with the, you know, with the the, the deficit in, in energy that that, uh, that Jev had to Cassidy and just the makeup of that circuit he couldn't get through and then went on that run of podiums before scoring his his first win in um in berlin and then doing back-to-backs in in monaco all the while buemi is quick but not necessarily getting the points that he should have got should have got um a podium in hyderabad but it was taken away for that ridiculously complex power spike um subject which you know so attracted you v to b to uh to that <laughs> story, i was just drifting back, back off to sleep again then, so <laughs> yeah. but um <laughs> so they were kind of slighted there i think that gave them a bit of extra impetus and motivation but generally the team has been it's a super tight-knit team it's very um it's very idiosyncratic well, it's, in the it's, way that it's it works. It's very similar back to the old uh, Virgin setup, isn't it? There's a lot of the same people are still there. Uh, there are, with, there are, and it, and it works. And Sylvain, it, yeah. yeah, it works wonderfully well. Uh, Leon Price, obviously, Sylvan Filippi is the managing director. Uh, Franz Jung is the the chairman of the team. Um, you know, they sportingly they've done a fantastic job and they deserve all they get. The, the, the nice little thing I like about Envision is that they back up what they do on the track with the other messaging, the sustainability messaging, the interesting, um, not just PR, but the wider messaging of why why Formula e exists. And a lot of teams either don't engage in that or they do it in a sort of pretty peripheral way, a pretty, you know, a bit of a flaky way. They're just tick boxes. Envision don't do that. They genuinely get into the nitty gritty of why more sustainable sport, more um, more emphasis on net carbon zero, all those things they really push and they really believe it. You know, every conversation you have with Sylvain Felipe will be fifty percent about the team and about the sport and about their drivers, and then it will be fifty percent about the the bigger message and, and and he truly believes and loves and understands it and i think they don't get enough credit for that so when you see you know when you see them on blue peter as they were last week when you see them on the one show when you see this incredible car with the you know the the sort of um the the old uh, computer bits on it and the that, oh, that whole brilliant. thing I love it's that. just that's, excellent yes yeah. proper proper formula e that is yeah and and you know i i just like to give them credit for that because i think they do a superb job with it and um they don't always get the credit for you know for putting their their head above the parapet and saying look we're we're, we're in this for a reason and this is and this is all the good stuff that that should be coming from success and and fair place them for doing that so talking of uh, unsung things that probably deserve a little bit more credit, there's a couple uh, to, to pull out. One is uh, Neo 333 finishing ahead of Mahindra in the team standings, which is probably not something we would have predicted either ahead of the season or, or after uh, Mexico. No, big improvement from Neo 333. They kind of went under the radar a bit because their results are a bit spiky. You know, they're, they're really quick. They've got a quick car and they got two quick drivers um, over one lap. Um, over race distance, it's much more challenging for them. But when you consider that Sete Camera finished fifth in Hyderabad and Tictum got sixth places in Cape Town and um, 
and somewhere else, Rome, I think, wasn't it? Um, and should have probably got a few more good good positions and, and didn't because of incidents and, and uh, on the track. But I thought they did a superb job this season when you consider that at the end of the season they scored 42 points, one more than Mahindra. And um, yeah, ninth position in the championship. I know that they were targeting eighth in the championship, which was always going to be ambitious from where they've come from. But I spoke to Alex Wee and I've spoken to to Tictum about this um, during the season. And there's something quite nice building there, I think. They obviously need more resources, they need more they need more partners and they need a bit more um bit more of a push to, to get into the, the Nissans and the, the Maseratis of uh, of the grid. But I think actually if they it looks like continuity is going to be set there for next season with Tictum and Sete Camera and they they've had the ups and downs both of them this season, but I actually think that uh that Neo three 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 are kind of like slightly um slightly quiet uh band of, of brothers and sisters there that deserve a bit of credit for this season because they've they've done a they've done a pretty nice job. And and the other one is a guy we you asked me this morning for my uh, top ten uh, rankings of the season, which uh, I, I duly gave all the, exactly the correct amount of thought that it, it uh, deserved. And uh, I had to find a place for Nico Muller in there, and you know it, another really impressive performance from him, getting into the into the duels and and bringing that you know uh, app team that have come on in the second half of the season from uh, having an awful start, uh, another a decent chunk of points. Yeah, I mean that that shouldn't be underestimated to to get the points that he has in both Rome. He's got 13 points in the last four races in a Mahindra M9 Electro which is quite clearly the um the least competitive package currently on the on the grid. But Muller has extracted something from it in in the last few races and that should not be underestimated what a great job he's done. I mean, that that is a real Herculean effort to get that car into the duels and, and into some, some decent point scoring positions. So, yeah, he, he deserves all the plaudits he can get for that. I thought he, he's done a, a mega job for, for actually most of the season. Most of it has been masked just by the fact that Abt Cooper have been on the back foot since the start of the season. Zero testing before they got to Valencia. And then they had all kinds of hitches from Frienz's accident in Mexico to withdrawing at Cape Town. And just about everything's been thrown at them. But I think they can look back at it, particularly Muller. You know, Frienz has been as quick as you'd expect him to be, but just hasn't had the, the luck to get the points that, that Muller has. And it was confirmed last week as well that, that Robin will be moving on from the team for next season we've already covered the fact that he'll be going back and wearing green again um which uh, was a surprise but yeah he, he'll be in a he'll be in a race winning car next year nico muller probably staying with with apps cooper and i think that's going to be a massive boost to the team for next season if it can you know get some good software upgrades and, and, and sort of pull together what it has at the moment because certainly for the last four races if not a few more they have outshone the the their manufacturer mothership team in Mahindra and um, yeah the fact that they I think when you look at the the um, the points at the lower end of the table they got 21 points to Mahindra's 41 well that's a 20 point discrepancy um, and 18 of those points came from um, the miracle of the season, the miracle of Mexico, as we like to call it, with De Grassi's <laughs> unfathomable, um, unfathomable podium over there. So, uh, yeah, all, all very interesting, that dynamic. And we'll see how that, that, that pans out over the next few months, because I think that there's going to be some, uh, some news 
quite shortly, probably about about the direction that Apt is going in for for twenty twenty five. Well, we'll get into all of that when we do a, a, a deep dive review of the season over the the long off season. Yeah. Um, yep. But there, there was actually a, a second race in in London. It's probably not one that will ever was go there? down. In I didn't the, notice. The was there? Books is the most, yeah, amazingly. Although it was so it was so rain delayed that I, I'd actually had to go out for dinner by the time it started. So I I, I hadn't actually watched it till this morning uh, in preparation for this podcast and. I missed nothing. I, I realised it's, like, it's uh, what an unfortunate way for the season to end. Um, Cassidy winning, Evan second, Dennis third, which is at least fitting that we had the best three drivers of the season taking the top three places. But given how unbelievably tense and exciting the previous day's race was, why was it quite as bad as it was? I, I thought sort of a wet, dry setup there would have made it quite exciting. But if anything, the complete opposite was the case. Well, it had all the ingredients to be an absolute classic. I thought. I think everybody thought. I had some friends in the in the grandstand at Turn One, and I was saying, "Hold on to your hats. This is going to be classic Formula E. There's going to be carnage. There's going to be safety cars. There's going to be manoeuvres. All kinds of stuff going on." It quickly became evident that the entire exact opposite was going to be the case, and I think what caused it was was two things. I think the first thing was uh, the visibility, because once they went out of the Excel arena into the open air, the visibility was horrible. So there is a natural conservative element that comes across from that point of view, because you know, as as, as good and skillful as drivers are, if you can't see anything particularly that you know you are naturally going to have a bit a uh, bit of margin left in the bank the other thing was actually it did start to dry out ever so slightly outside and i think part of it was that going offline um on a circuit that um had been had been rubbered in um to some extent the day before it was just so extraordinarily treacherous and when you consider the you know the extra torque that these things have got with 300 and 350 kilowatts and the fact that the um the front mgu now is part of the 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 recuperation of of energy on these cars they are extremely difficult to drive in the dry in the dry let alone the wet and we haven't apart from berlin qualifying which is one lap we've not seen a, a a concerted amount of laps in wet conditions fully wet conditions so the drivers were still learning about how to drive the things in those conditions it, it wasn't worth taking do or die efforts uh, in corners because it was so treacherous offline and the visibility just made for a bit of a procession unfortunately and even though it was last race of the season and it was schools out and you're expecting desperate lunges it just it just wasn't worth or the conditions just didn't allow that to happen so we ended up with this pr- procession and i felt so sorry for my for my friends who sort of waited for 90 <laughs> minutes and then got a complete drone fest with very little action but look at least they got a race and i thought having having been a bit critical of um some of some of the FIA earlier in this podcast i'd just like to say i thought that was handled extremely well um the the fact that they uh, they did uh, assess the conditions as they did and i thought that was handled particularly well and responsibly because um despite some of uh, what people might think um they all want to race and they they're quite capable of racing in wet conditions but when when there's a risk a high risk of aquaplaning it makes no sense to to start a race at this level yeah no i, I agree with all that and i'm disappointed in the underwhelming way for the season to end but nevertheless i think hopefully 
uh, people had enjoyed enough on Saturday to uh, yeah, come back again uh, for next year. Maybe the weather would be a little bit better. Um, you mentioned there, uh, Frying's going back to Envision. Uh, probably a good time to go on to the driver merry-go-round before we wrap this up. Uh, Sandbird's departure from Jaguar being confirmed being one of those uh, elements to discuss. Yeah, I mean, it's been a real, you know, it's a magic roundabout, isn't it? I mean, another reference for our uh, mm. for our boomers there. Um, but I don't know. I, th- I think there's still a lot to come. I mean, I think perhaps by the time this podcast goes out that potentially, uh, well, we already know Sam Bird is officially out of Jaguars. You know, Nick Cassidy will be confirmed there very shortly, uh, perhaps this week, perhaps next. Robin Frein's ditto with Envision. Um, I think Apt will take time to announce Robin's replacement there, probably alongside Nico Muller, but you'd have to say that Kelvin van der Linde would have a good shot there because he did a perfectly respectable job in difficult circumstances earlier this season when he replaced Robin for a few races. Um, and then the question marks evolve around Nissan. We believe that uh, the favourite for that position alongside Sasha Fenestrads for next season will be a returning Oliver Rowland. Um, and then McLaren, um, the, the hot uh, the hot ticket there is for Sam Bird to hook up with Jake Dennis um, at Neon McLaren for Rene Rast to, to do a, a dual DTM and um, WEC programme with you BMW. Mean, you mean Jake Hughes, don't you? Did I say Jake Dennis? You did. I did, of course. I, I've, I've been on the cusp of doing that uh, all season, and I leave it to the last, very last moments of the uh, season. So Jake Hughes, of course, yeah. So um, then there is a lot of question marks about Lucas Degrasse's future. We spoke to him just ahead of the London Epre, and Lucas, his body language and what he was saying indicates he'll stay with Mahindra, but that's just not that's simply not guaranteed at this stage. I think there are options on his side for, for maybe moving elsewhere where that could be. Who knows? Could he go back to his old team of apt? It it could happen, but potentially I think maybe that, that, that might occur in 2025 or for 25. Uh, Maserati looks, looks as though it's not, it's not nailed on, but looks as though it'll stick with Max Gunter and and Edo Mortara. Um, And then the real, Unknown, as I mentioned, Mahindra. Um, I think that covers it, doesn't it? Neo will probably say the same with Tictum and, and Sete Camera. Um, so, again, we've got a, an absolutely stellar field that's uh, brewing up nicely for, for next season. So, uh, yeah, can't wait for it to get going again. We all need a bit of rehab this month, I think. In August, there'll be some very uh, tired people on, on beaches and elsewhere. But I think come September, everybody will be gearing up for that test at Valencia at the end of October and then ready to go again in the new year in, in Mexico city nice one sam well i can stop getting the glares from my family because i am actually on holiday i'm in a very windy part of uh, south of france at the moment but i always take an hour or so out to to do these i wouldn't consider that to be work especially as when we started this it was pouring down so i was literally missing nothing but about five minutes ago the sun's come out so probably a good time for us to wrap this up great stuff well it's been a pleasure um just covering this fantastic championship all season we never have a paucity of things to talk about do we so uh yeah thanks for listening and um and don't forget to check out all the news on uh, the hyphenrace.com over the, the coming months as we lead up to to 24 well said that man thank you all for listening and we'll speak to you soon goodbye The Athletic.
Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.